Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. Honeybees have captured my attention. As more local beekeepers began popping up at the farmer's market, it seemed that friends and family were becoming obsessed with the hobby, and they weren't alone. The Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg installed a rooftop urban apiary and brought in exhibits inspired by bees. A newspaper article in the Ledger described how the loss of Florida orange groves to disease was affecting orange blossom honey. And as host of the Zest podcast, I started hearing about honey-based cuisine and the revival of that staple of King Arthur's Roundtable, mead. And Florida is one of the top states in the country in honey production, with some of the finest quality honey you can find. In a special reporting collaboration between WUSF News and the Zest podcast, we're taking a closer look at honeybees over the next several weeks. This week on Florida Matters, I'm speaking to Dr. Jamie Ellis, professor of entomology and director of honeybee research at the University of Florida. Dr. Ellis and his team conduct research projects in the fields of honeybee husbandry, conservation and ecology, and integrated crop pollination. And he created UF's Master Beekeeper Program. There's been good news and bad news about bees lately, and it's hard to know how they're doing exactly. So I asked Dr. Ellis about his overall feeling about the state of honeybees. Everyone who finds out I'm a bee scientist instantly asks me, you know, what's killing the honeybees? The issue is, is this. We have about two and a half million honeybee colonies or managed honeybee colonies in the United States. And in around 2006, beekeepers noticed high loss rates. We were hearing reports from beekeepers somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 percent losses annually. So that phenomenon is what created this issue that early got tagged as colony collapse disorder. And that really hit the world by storm. It didn't just become a Florida issue or a U.S. issue. It became an international issue. So for just over a decade, people have been trying to address what's happening to honeybees. Well, it's tricky because if you look closely at the numbers in the United States, we actually have averaged a net increase in the number of honeybee colonies we've had every year for about the past 10 or 12 years. And that net increase is around one or so percent. Essentially what you have, if you have 100 colonies, you're going to experience a gross loss rate of somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40 percent. So you're going to lose 40 of those colonies and have 60. So you have to do something to those 60 that you have to regain 41 colonies. And so with those 60, beekeepers can split colonies, they can purchase colonies, etc. But at the end of the day, with a 40 percent gross loss rate, they'll end up with 1% more colonies than they had. Now, what it sounds like to me is that used to be beekeepers could maybe buy the hives, put the hives out, and kind of sit back and let the bees do the work. But since this colony collapse disorder has happened, beekeepers have had to get a lot more proactive, a lot more educated, and they're doing that. Obviously, they're, they're doing really well, and they're coming up with this net 1% increase because they're doing a lot more than they used to. 
that is a perfect summary of it. Here, here's the issue, right? So we do have high gross loss rates. If you think about any other agriculture commodity in the U.S., if they were claiming that they were losing 30 to 40 percent of their commodity, you know, the federal government would throw millions upon millions of dollars at it to try to address those issues. But beekeepers have, have largely had to address these issues directly. And if you think about it, the fact that they are averaging a net increase, even though the loss rate, the gross loss rate is so high, must mean that this is coming at great sacrifice to beekeepers. They're having to invest significantly in recovering those losses that they've experienced throughout the year. So I always tell people the heroes in this story happen to be the beekeepers. They're the ones who are shielding the general public from the impacts that these losses could have on the rest of us. Is that why honey is so expensive? Yeah, that's certainly a contributing factor, right? So uh, another thing that's uh, important in Florida is not just the fact that beekeepers have to work so hard for honey production in Florida, but of all the states in the United States, and I'm bragging just a bit here, Florida actually has among the best honeys across the U.S. Furthermore, when you think about most states, they can only tell you one, maybe two named or significant honeys. Florida has many honeys. And so not only do do beekeepers have to work so hard to produce honey in this state, but the honey they are producing is really among the best available in the country. So both of those factors contribute to the cost. What makes it the best? A fantastic question. So if you think about Florida, if you go around the state, people are going to say things, oh, Jamie, you're a bee scientist. Oh, I just love, and you don't know what's going to come out of their mouth. It's going to be maybe citrus honey, maybe Tupelo honey, maybe palmetto honey, maybe mangrove honey. All of these are amazing honeys that other beekeepers from other states move thousands of colonies to our state just to be able to collect. Tupelo itself is a bush that grows in the swamps in the Florida panhandle, and Tupelo is one of the most highly prized honeys on planet Earth. Consumers show us that this is the best honey. This is what they want. What's the quality? Is it viscousness? Is it the sweetness? Is it just that it's got an unusual floral flavor? Yeah, you know, it's, it's all the above. One of the funny things that most people outside the business don't know is that there, there is this whole culture built around assessing honey quality and honey judging. Just like you could go to a, a wine tasting conference, you can go to honey tasting and honey judging conferences, and you learn to recognize things that make honey really good. For example, uh, sugar content, low moisture content. But if you think about it, too, the fact that we say things like citrus honey, tupelo honey, all of this stuff, all of these species of plants produce nectar that's unique to those species. It's, it's almost like those individuals who are producing wine saying that you've got to have grapes grown from this region in France or Italy to produce this wine. Well, honey is even more specialized than that. Let me ask you about that. So I have friends who are beekeepers. And I want to ask you about this explosion of interest in beekeeping. But they tell me they don't really have any control over how their honey tastes. A neighbor just brought over a jar of honey the other day. I said, this it, it tastes like cotton candy. It is the best honey I have ever had. And she said, I have no idea why. So I think backyard beekeepers, their their bees go out and forage. They can go up to five miles away. They feel like they don't have any control over how that's going to taste at the end of the day. But commercial beekeepers have to have a standardized product. Yeah, so you really are making two points, and I want to address them both just quickly. The first one, the, hob- the hobbyist beekeeper maybe has a couple of colleagues. To me, that's the beauty of the art of honey. If you plant a beehive somewhere, you have no idea 
the floral bouquet, the richness that will be represented in that jar of honey. You know, beekeepers who don't know the floral source basically label the honey wildflower. The word wildflower means we don't know where it came from. It just came from out there. But if you think about it, your wildflower would be different from mine here in Gainesville. And to me, that's part of the beauty of the diversity of taste. The same is true across the world. Wherever you plant a beehive, it is going to collect the unique nectar from flowers out in the environment and create a honey that is unique to your area. Now, more specific to your second point, commercial beekeepers, you're right, have to, I guess, in many ways, represent their honey honestly. For example, they want to be able to say that this is Tupelo honey or citrus honey. And the best way to accomplish that is they must move their colonies to areas that have high densities of the crop in question. So, for example, if you want to produce Tupelo honey, you've got to take your bees to the swamps of the Florida Panhandle or southeast Georgia, and you've got to put your bees in an area where the dominant floral source in the environment is, in fact, that flower that you're hoping to make that jar of honey um, from. So what has happened in Florida? Because orange blossom honey used to be everywhere, and beekeepers really relied on it. But now, since we've had this terrible citrus greening outbreak, and we've lost about 70% of our citrus crops, what has happened to orange blossom honey? Essentially, with the, with the decline in citrus, beekeepers have had to find other honeys, or more specifically, move bees into the pollination arena. I want to echo the fact that citrus growers, of course, by and large, are following best management practices to to control greening. But certainly there's this perception among some beekeepers that they just need to stay away from citrus for that purpose. Nevertheless, I, I really want to say that what has really started to gain attention and traction in the industry is, is the migration away from things like that and more towards the pollination of crops. So they are taking their beehives to California, to the almond groves, which need, I think, a million hives is is what I've heard in order to pollinate the almond trees in California. And that's become a way for beekeepers to make money, right? You know, it's funny. The general public is largely shielded from the, the real business of beekeeping. When they think of honeybees, they think of honey production because honey's in the name. But what honeybees really do for us is pollination. And the growers know this. Many growers produce pollination-dependent crops. You name one of those crops, almonds. Uh, There's also in Florida blueberries, cantaloupes, um, some citrus, squashes, cucumbers. And what happens is a grower who is growing a pollinator-dependent crop will pay a beekeeper to move his or her bees to that crop while the crop is in bloom. Now, the benefit to the grower is that those honeybees are out there collecting pollen from these flowers and moving pollen from flower to flower. So the grower gets not just more fruit or vegetables, but they get better fruits or vegetables. And the driving crop for the beekeeping industry is exactly the one you note. It's almonds. Every year, over a million and a half of the United States' 2.5 million colonies, every year about a million and a half are moved to California just to pollinate the almond crops. That represents on any given year around 60% of the nation's honeybees. And the almond growers will pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $150 to $225 per colony for the bees to just sit out there while the crop's in bloom. The average beekeeper who uses his or her bees to pollinate crops will then move their bees from almonds to another three to four different crops before getting their bees ready for winter. 
So that means these beekeepers are trucking their bees hundreds, maybe thousands of miles around the United States just to make sure these growers have enough bees to pollinate the crops. So this is good for the growers. It's essential for the growers. And the beekeepers are making some money. But I don't know if this is good for the bees. Yeah, so a lot of people point that out, right? So one of the things about honeybees is that honeybees are generalist pollinators. That means that they have to visit multiple uh, species of plants. Bees have to collect pollen from flowers. And if you leave a honeybee colony alone, it is collecting a diversity of pollen because a diversity of pollen ensures a diversity of protein, vitamins, minerals, nutrients, etc., So some people argue that when you put bees on a crop for four to six weeks, that they're essentially feeding on a monoculture, right? They're getting one crop's pollen and one crop's nectar. And generally speaking, most crops to which honeybees are taken to pollinate are poor food sources for honeybees. And so as a result, many beekeepers are having to supplement bee colonies' nutrition. So some people point out that that moving to these monocultures can lead to nutritional issues. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think they're certainly a, a contributor to that. When you poll beekeepers around the country and ask them what are the, the three most significant stressors of honeybee colonies, they'll tell you varroa, nutrition, and they'll tell you queen quality. So I, I consider nutrition one of the big three when we consider honeybee stressors. So you mentioned varroa mites. That is a big cause of the colony loss. Those are little parasites. How do they hurt the bee? Varroa are the principal stressor of honeybee colonies on planet earth they are the primary killer of honeybees the data suggests that beekeepers suggest that so why is it so bad well varroa is a really really small mite if if i were to try to train someone from the general public how to recognize it it'd be very difficult it's just a tiny thing but relative to the size of the bee it is one of the largest parasites known on the planet. If I were to scale a bee up to our size, the varroa would be somewhere between a softball and a volleyball size. Ugh. So essentially, it would be like you carrying a volleyball-sized tick on your body Ugh. that's chewing a hole in your body. And, and varroa has was believed to feed on honeybee hemolymph, which is their blood. It has now been shown with some colleagues and myself that, that varroa actually feed on honeybee fat bodies. And these fat bodies are responsible for a lot of things in bees, including nutritional management, pesticide detoxification, and so on. So we've got this huge parasite relative to the size of the bee puncturing the bee and feeding on this essential tissue that the bees have. And to make it worse, this parasite transmits pathogens. So the act of feeding is bad enough, but the fact that when this mite bites the bee, it can transmit some of the worst viral pathogens that honeybees have. When you put these together, you get dead bees. And so one of the things that we spend so much time trying to do is educate beekeepers on varroa control. Commercial beekeepers know this with certainty. If they don't control varroa, their bees die. But we also work in our lab to try to identify new varroa control strategies. So without question, varroa are the worst thing that our honeybees have to face. You compared it to a tick. I can give my dog and cat flea and tick medicine. Why can't we give the bees in their sugar water or something some kind of anti-varroa medicine? What a fantastic question. So let me tell you why it's fantastic. When we have cattle and we're trying to control flies on a cattle, we're trying to control an insect on a mammal. 
when we are trying to control um, the Asian citrus psyllid on the citrus tree, we're trying to control an insect on a plant. But when we're trying to control a mite on a bee, a mite is an arthropod, and bees as insects are arthropods. So when essentially we're trying to control a mite on a bee, mm. we're trying to control an arthropod on an arthropod with an arthropodicide. So if you think about it, it's not the same as applying an insecticide to a mammal where we're trying to kill insects on a mammal. We're trying to kill an arthropod on an arthropod with something that's potentially damaging to the one we're trying to protect. And so as a result, there's only a small number of compounds that has toxicities low enough on bees that you can scale high enough to kill mites but not impact bees. It's a tricky, tricky thing to kill. We hear a lot about pesticides and that a ban has been lift from certain pesticides and that is killing the bees, which intuitively seems like it would be true because if it's a pesticide kills insects and bees are insects, killing bees. Well, you've raised the most controversial issue in our business, the impact of pesticides on bees. If you, if you follow the news, you're going to see pesticides discussed for lots of reasons. You know, reason number one, it's just one of the things that people love to hate. Reason number two, when you screen honeybee colonies, you actually find pesticide residues in them. Logically, it makes sense when you're exposing bees to all these compounds, they would be causing issues. The trouble is, is that science is having very difficult times reproducing the impacts that some are claiming is happening. There's no doubt that pesticides kill bees every year, but the vast majority of these deaths are due to exposures that never should have happened in the first place. Perhaps the label wasn't followed when the pesticide was applied. Maybe the bees were moved in too late or too early. So generally speaking, Pesticide labels are developed in a way that when followed appropriately, it minimizes the impact of collateral damage, including damage to pollinators. So a lot of the impacts that people are saying uh, are, are happening to bees are hard to reproduce in the lab or in controlled studies. So we've got this idea that pesticides are driving it, but we don't have the data to support that generally. So, of course, you, you might ask me next, then, well, then why did Europe ban the use of certain compounds. And I would say, you know, a good part of, of their reason for doing that was just public pressure. When, when you hear the scientists talk, they, many of them didn't support the ban. Now, of course, there are scientists who, who adamantly believe that pesticides are the driving impact on bees. Some of this becomes a chicken-egg argument. For example, we know that pesticides can cause the death of cells in the honeybee's stomach, the midgut. So when we're seeing something that we recognize as a nutritional deficiency, is it a nutritional deficiency, or did they get exposed to sublethal doses of, of pesticides, which led to this nutritional deficiency? And that's where the science is at, at the moment, trying to figure out these possible synergisms. So what about, there are bees that are native to Florida? There's about 320 species of bees in Florida. And of those 320-ish, only one of those is the honeybee. That means we have 319 or so more species of bees. Some of these are introduced, but the vast majority of them are native. Bumblebees, carpenter bees, sweat bees, and leafcutter bees, etc. All bees are important pollinators of something in the environment. So that might be uh, native plants that produce berries and fruit, etc. for wildlife, but it also includes agriculture. There's plenty of native bees that are important for the production of human food. So I want to ask you about growth in Florida. We're having 
you know, a boom, a population boom. Here's something from one of your publications that I found. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, while many plants are acceptable pollen producers, very few yield enough nectar to produce a surplus honey crop. Those that do generally are indigenous to Florida and may be in danger of being lost to urbanization. So do we have to worry we're cutting down too many of our indigenous plants and that that could also be maybe contributing to the poor nutrition? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things that would, would I think, amaze most people in the general public, if you think about the names on honey jars, there are very few that are actually agricultural crops. Now, we live in Florida, so people are instantly going to throw citrus at me, Mm -hmm. but they won't be able to name another one, gallberry, palmetto, tupelo, mangrove. All of these things are native plants. The the vast majorities of honey produced in the United States are produced from native shrubs or trees, not agricultural crops. So honey production is very dependent on the existence of these wild, unmanaged patches of native plants. A lot of these honey sources might be very susceptible, especially due to urbanization or disease or pest spread. So absolutely important that we manage these. So speaking of indigenous plants and non-indigenous plants, the Brazilian pepper plant has become really important to beekeepers. So how does that, the tension of that work? Because I know ecologists are trying to get rid of that. Wow, you're asking the million dollar question that can do nothing but get me in trouble. So (laughs) you of course recognize the issue that we have Brazilian pepper in the state of Florida. So Brazilian pepper blooms in August and September. It is unquestionably the best nectar source for honeybees in South Florida. It's so good that beekeepers move their colonies to it from other areas of Florida. Why is that good for bees? If if beekeepers keep bees elsewhere, they often have to feed their bees so the bees can store enough honey to survive winter. Well, Brazilian pepper will feed bees for you and give a surplus of honey that bees can, beekeepers can harvest and sell. It's not a particularly good tasting honey, so we call it baker's grade. It's the kind of thing that would show up in honey buns or honey nut Cheerios, stuff like that. Nevertheless, it's extremely important to beekeepers. But as you have recognized, it is an incredibly invasive, destructive, terrible for the environment plant. So as a result, the University of Florida, the Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services, the USDA, et cetera, have had scientists who worked on Brazilian pepper control. Uh, very recently, they uh, released an insect that they hope stunts or slows the growth of Brazilian pepper. So, you know, I'm kind of sitting between two worlds now where beekeepers are really up in arms that they're about to lose one of their most important honey crops. And, of course, everyone else in the state who would want an invasive species eradicated so that the native species can benefit. So it's definitely a, a tricky situation. I mean, the way that we're talking about it now is there's no indication that the releases of insects at the moment are going to eliminate Brazilian pepper overnight. We think it's going to be a very slow decline. I've seen numbers 10 to 15 years before we even start noticing measurable decline. Nevertheless, the the sales pitch to beekeepers, though, is that when this stuff disappears, it's going to open up habitat for a lot of our other native plants that can come back and, and serve as floral resources. Now, the real trick is the benefit of Brazilian pepper is not that it produces nectar, it's when it produces nectar. So a lot of beekeepers will hear us say, 
You know, there will be other things that grow in its place that produce nectar, but many of them consider that of no benefit to them if it doesn't produce nectar in fall. I have a couple friends just on my street who have been up to your bee college. And (laughs) so from just from my limited experience, this backyard beekeeping is booming. Are you seeing an increase in interest in that? Oh, my goodness. It has absolutely exploded. When I got hired in 2006, there were 1,100 or so registered beekeepers in the state of Florida. There's now nearly 5,000. So during the same time that we have experienced a you know increase from about 1,100 beekeepers to nearly 5,000 beekeepers, we have seen an increase from about 100 to 150,000 colonies to nearly 600,000 colonies. So we've had a four- to five-fold increase in beekeepers and bees in this state during the last 10 or 12 years. So it has absolutely exploded. The vast majority of those beekeepers are hobbyist beekeepers, probably like the one, the individuals living on your street. Those Mm -hmm. are the ones who are going to keep two or three or four colonies. Commercial beekeepers from other states are coming to Florida to overwinter their hives because almonds bloom so early and they want to get their colonies a head start in a warm state before they move their bees out west. So our state has has just grown in importance. I think somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the nation's bees pass through our state any given year. How big a problem is fake honey? Fake honey has been a big problem in the industry. You know, there's claims that there's lots of honey coming in from outside the U.S. Uh, worse yet, there's stuff that's being called honey that's not. Florida, the Florida State Beekeepers Association worked with the Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services as well as my team at the University of Florida about 10 or 12 years ago to develop the the state's first definition of honey. Honey has to be a product produced by honeybees from the nectar from flowers. Well, you know, before that you could feed bees sugar water and they would make a honey-like substance and you could extract that and kind of mix it. And as long as the jar had 51% or more honey, you know, you could slap a label on it that said honey. Well, these days, if it says honey, it has to be honey. So there's claims of adulteration. There's claims of watering down honey. Uh, A lot of commercial guys will complain about honey imports from China and other places that they believe are coming into the country illegally. So this, this is definitely a big issue for beekeepers. Is there any way to know for the person shopping in the grocery store? Is that real? Let me tell you, it's incredibly difficult to know once you are looking at a jar of honey on the store shelf. What I always suggest to consumers is we have beekeepers everywhere in the state. If you go to your local farmer's market, you are almost certainly going to run into a local beekeeper selling local honey. The consumer can go to the Florida State Beekeeper Association's website, find their local bee club, and find local beekeepers in their area. Why I say all of this? Because I strongly promote consumers buying and consuming local honey. Does that guarantee that they're getting pure honey? No, but it certainly tilts the scale in their favor. And that's not me trying to belittle the the, the honey on the the, the megastore shelves, but it's really the best way that they can increase the odds that they're buying stuff that they know with certainty to be pure honey. Jamie Ellis, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listen for our special reporting collaboration between WUSF News and the Zest Podcast. We'll be taking a closer look at honeybees over the next several weeks. And you'll hear an extended version of my interview with Dr. Ellis on the Zest Podcast. Those podcasts drop every Thursday, and you can search for them wherever you get your podcasts or at thezestpodcast.com. 
Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. With this week's show, we're welcoming our new Florida Matters producer, Christy Oshana. A huge thanks to Stephanie Colombini for her terrific work on Florida Matters as she moves to full-time reporting duties for WUSF. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.